Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, for whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. That's the word of the living God. Would you be seated? Thank you so much for standing. The Bible says that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, dangerous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. If we're not in the self-love age, then I hate to see it when it comes. And now we've contorted the gospel and we've made the gospel to appeal to self-love. We've made the gospel and in so doing that, we have done in our in our promotion of the gospel, in our sharing of the gospel, we've done exactly what Paul has warned against and we've become enemies of the cross. See, the gospel message now has been reduced to this. Now, the gospel hasn't been reduced. The message has. And that's this. It's not really a matter of... It's not really a matter at all as to WWJD. You remember that when the bracelets came out and said WWJD? What would Jesus do? You know what the better question is? Why would Jesus die? See, the, 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 the gospel has become reduced to a system of belief to make you a better this or to make you a better that. Or you can apply these principles and you can run your business by this and you'll, you'll have a good measure of success. Or you can apply these principles to your family and you'll have a good measure of success. And on it goes. And we have a therapy approach to the gospel that the Bible doesn't know anything about. It panders to the flesh. The message does not cut to the heart. Why did he die? Who's responsible? What was it about? Am I culpable? What is all of that about? Why, did, why would Jesus die is the question we need to ask. Because before you ever worry about what Jesus did, you need to understand what was this all about. And because we've downsized it and been ashamed of it, we've made the gospel a man-centered message. And guess what? The gospel is supposed to start with God. The gospel starts not with the character and nature of man. The gospel should start with the character and nature of God. Because see, if it starts with the character and nature of man, and it's man-centered, then the redemptive activity of God in Christ was just to make your life better. It was to improve your situation. And then, here's what winds up happening. We apologize for the character and nature of God. We apologize for the fact that He's holy. We apologize for the fact that He's a God of wrath. We apologize for the fact that He's a God of justice. We make apologies for Him. And our modern day evangelical techniques have been, have been based on apologizing for God. I'm so sorry He's like that. And rather than man being put on trial, God has been put on trial. God, you proved to me. Not that you are. He's already proven that through conscience and creation. Everybody knows there's a God through those two. There are two evangelists that speak to everybody. Conscience and creation. And we put Him on the witness stand. How dare us? 
And we make judgments about the righteous judgment of God. Implying that God somehow or another is going to make a mistake. Or maybe that what He does is unfair. It's not right. So therefore, let's change the message and tweak it ever so gently. And if you ever start doing that, there's no end to how much tweaking you'll do. And let's apologize for God. Spencer, put the picture up there, will you? A couple of weeks ago, and by the way, thank you for all the gifts. I don't even know who gave all the gifts, so I can't thank you like by writing you a letter. But thank you for everything. It was such a wonderful, generous outpouring of grace and mercy to a 50-year-old man. I forgot I turned 50. But as a part of that, as part of that celebration, I don't know if you can see it or not, but I want to show you something. Do you see what... Do you see... Whoa, get that out of the way. Uh, you see this picture right here? Are you there? Wait, no, yeah. See if you can... He, when he gets there... Don't, just ignore those and look this way, please. Please ignore that. You see this? You see this? And for those of you who are going to listen to this on an eye, uh, you know, on the podcast, or you're going to get a CD, what I'm holding up right now is a picture of uh, what appears to be a baptism. Does that what that looks like to you? Can you see it? Okay, on the back of it, my mother wrote, "Lindsay was baptized in 1969." There it is. Okay, that does. Would would, would anybody look at that and go? And, and, and determine from anything about that 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 was anything but a what? Baptism. That guy's name is Don Winthrow. He's in heaven now. That was at Woodlawn Baptist Church in Baxley, Georgia. And my grandfather started that church. And in 1969, and I would have been eight years old, they appeared to do something to me that looks like a baptism. But that was not a baptism. It has all the trappings of a baptism. It ain't like we all got together and said, let's go down here to the pool. As a matter of fact, out here in the audience, what you can't see is a church full of people. It looks like a baptism. We had water. We've got the pastor there. And we got me with my little nappy head. And there we are. And it has all the trappings of a baptism, but it was not a baptism. It was not a baptism. And I'm going to explain to you why it was not a baptism. The reason it was not a baptism is it's because I just got wet that morning. That's all that happened to me. It's my personal testimony. And we're gonna, I'm going to explain to you why that was not a baptism by looking at the Scriptures. Would you turn to Isaiah 45, 21? Turn to Isaiah 45, 21. I went to a revival meeting that preceded this baptism. I'm only getting into my personal testimony because it relates to and illustrates what we're talking about here this morning. And that's the gospel. My mother saw to it that I was in church every Sunday, every Wednesday, and every Sunday night. I never missed vacation Bible school. I distinctly remember that because I used to count the days until it was over so I could start my summer vacation. And... She saw to it that I was in church. My dad was apostate for most of my life, and he had nothing to do with the church whatsoever. But my mother saw to it that I heard the gospel from an early age. I could never not remember not believing in Jesus Christ. I could never not remember. I can never remember a time when I did not believe in Jesus Christ. And we went to the revival meeting. My grandfather was instrumental with a bunch of other pastors in the area of having a crusade. And E.J. Daniels was the name of the evangelist. And he had one of those big giant tents. 
and I was a little bee fella, and I was walking to my dad, and apparently my father had guilted my dad into coming that evening for the for the service, otherwise he wouldn't have been there. And I remember walking in there, and I said, Dad, when are you supposed to get saved? He said, Son, that's he had sense enough to say, Well, that's between you and God, kind of thing. Let's, let me stay out of that. So when he responded to the invitation, I went down. And I remember standing next to the organ, and my britches were blowing from the the wind that was coming from that organ. And I was scared, slapped to death. And I remember they carried me back to the back, and I went to a tent, and they wrote out a card. And the next thing you're supposed to do is go get baptized. So I went and got baptized. I thought I got baptized. But I didn't get baptized. I just got wet. And here's why. Look at the Bible. Tell and bring forth your case Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. I am a just God and a Savior. Now you've heard, many of you, most of your life probably that God's a Savior. Did you know you'll hardly ever run into anybody that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ? You hardly ever. They believe in Jesus, the apostles, and all them. They believe that they, He existed. They even believe in the cross. The devil believes in the cross. He saw it happen. He tried to keep Jesus from going there. And they believe in all of these stories. And they're reduced to stories, Ted. They're just reduced to little illustrations, maybe how to live better. You know, and Jesus came and showed us what compassion looks like. Jesus came and showed us what love looks like. Jesus came and told us to turn the other cheek. He told us all these wonderful, wholesome, and gave us these moral messages. But God says, no, 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 no. Listen to me. Listen to me now. If you just focus in on the fact that I'm a Savior, if you just go right here and you zone in on the fact that I'm a Savior, you're preaching half the gospel. And see, the title of this message is Enemies of the Cross, the Whole Gospel and Not the Half. See, if you just go right here and say, oh, God's a Savior. He's a Savior. He's a Savior. Trust Him as your Savior. Is God a Savior? You better believe it. But God's salvation work in His Son is only understood when it, you also understand that He's also something else. And the true outline of the Gospel is not that He's just a Savior. The true outline of the Gospel is that there's another part of God's righteous character that we tend to overlook. And the, and, the, and the people who would promote the kind of gospel that we hear nowadays would have, us, would have us neglect this character attribute of God. Because if we neglect this character attribute of God, you can kind of make a case that God brutally sacrificed His Son on Calvary's hill for people who deserved it. Maybe in that bunch... He saw some future pastors. Or maybe, you know, after all, I came from a good family. I came from a, a wholesome family. We've been church-going folks all our lives. We've been this, we've been that, we've been the other. So maybe there was some potential that God saw in me. And yeah, I, I've blown it some. But maybe there was some potential in there that God saw in me. And He deemed it, He saw it worth it to spend His Son on Calvary in order to make me a Christian. See, if you go down this, this direction, this doesn't exalt God. This exalts man. Oh, God did that for a worthy bunch of people. And, and after all, I de in the whole scheme of things, really, if you got down to it, I deserved it. It's a soulish, selfish 
salvation that the Bible doesn't know anything about. But look at the narrative. What does it say? Come and let us take counsel together. After saying, bring forth your case. You know what? You know who the case is? The gospel is best understood when it's pre presented in the atmosphere of a trial. And God is not on trial. Guess who is? You and me. We sit not in the just the seat of the accused. We don't just sit in the seat of the defendant. We sit in the seat of the condemned. We sit in the seat of the guilty. And God has committed all judgment to His Son. And He sits in judgment. And when we look at the Gospel, let's look at it at Let's look at it in its entirety. Let's don't mess with it. Let's don't contort it. Let's be honest with it and let it be honest with us. So what is that other character? Let's, God's saying, let's take counsel together. I'm bringing forth a case not to prove to you that I am, but to reveal to you that I am means you're unholy. And my holiness demands that you be punished forever for that. Because you've rebelled against me. Because see, the other character attribute of God, the one that we first need to focus in on the fact, is that God is just. He's a just God, and He's also a Savior. But in sharing the Gospel... And in listening to the gospel, we must resist the urge to go straight to the fact that He's a Savior. We must go first where the gospel goes. And that is that He's just. See, this has got to be established and rooted in the heart of the hearer. Otherwise, that's downsized to just a benevolent act by a kind religious leader for people who really deserved it after all. You see, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Let's look at God's righteous standard. You've heard the narrative. You've read through these verses. Let's go there, friends. And let's go to, let's go to Exodus chapter 20. And let's look at God's righteous standard. And let's measure our behavior by that standard. We're standing here alone in the seat of of the accused, the prosecuted, and yes, the condemned. And God is given forth not a case that He is. Don't worry about God. You don't have to defend Him. You don't have to apologize for Him. You don't have to be worried about people who don't believe that He is and assert that there is no God because they don't believe that anyway. It's just their way to continue in their sin without facing judgment for it. Don't apologize for God. Don't worry about it. He's, he's good. He's going to take care of himself. He'll be all right. God will be all right. And at the end, I promise you, God's going to do right. God's going to do right. Okay? But he's just. And see, the gospel flows from his character and nature, not from ours. We're shoving it up to him, telling him what we think it's like. And he's trying to flow it down to us to say, no, here's what I'm like. And he said, let's take counsel together. And let me, let's establish this. God's just, okay? Let's, let's, look at, let's look at the justice of God because His divine standard is in these, in these verses. How did you do? How did you do? Look at this one. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Let me ask you a question. In your entire life, I've been around over 50 years now, and it's your, your entire life from pillar to post, as far as how long you've been alive right now, have you had only God as your God? You've never, not one time in your life, given worship to anybody except the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can anybody in here say, I have exclusively worshipped God all my life? And I have never compromised that my entire life. Not in just deed, not in just action, and not in just motives, but in the heart. Where nobody sees but you and Him. Any takers? Okay. What about this one? You shall not make for yourselves a carved image and the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And the Lord said, If you fashion anything... And you know what, we, we, we kind of think of this in terms of pagan, uncivilized cultures. And we think, well, they do a lot of that. But, you know, we're, we're more sophisticated than that. We just worship Chevrolets, you know, or a, a Cadillac, or an idea. Or, or we, we can worship and make an idol out of what I want to be one day. That, that I, can't, I can't worship God in my present situation. And the only God that I will worship is a God who will change things to get to what I think I ought to be. That's idolatry. You don't have to bow before a Buddha or rub a stomach somewhere to be an idolater. It's, it's far deeper than that. Idolatry is a sin of the heart. And you don't have to have any kind of physical carved image to do it. But we worship images all the time. We worship things we worship the promise and hope of something that maybe we don't have. Has anybody in here never, ever, ever been a guilty of idolatry in your entire life? Never. Okay? Let's look at the next one. Number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will, hold, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Have you ever heard anybody say Oh, my devil. Curious, isn't it? You don't hear that, do you? I'm not going to repeat what they say otherwise, but you ever heard anybody say, Oh, my. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. That is defiling the name of God. Have you ever, have you ever been so mad at somebody that you slandered them? Do you know what you're doing? You're taking the Lord's name in vain because He created them. And guess how He created them? In His own image. You ever used God's name loosely? You ever used it even in a religious context loosely? And, and with false motives? Have you ever spoken it to let people think how spiritual you are when underneath you're harboring all kind of sin? Have you ever professed your Christianity knowing all the while you habitually drag His name through the mud at work? And somebody says, you're a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. You are? 
moment you say that, you take His name in vain. The moment you say that, you take His name in vain. Anybody here not guilty of ever doing that? Anybody? Any takers on that? Okay. Number eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord your God, it shall be you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath day. That has nothing to do with Sunday. It has nothing to do with Sunday morning church. Even if we worship on Saturday, which is technically the Sabbath, it would have nothing to do with that either. The only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament is this one. All the rest of them are repeated in the New Testament except this one. And the reason why is, is because the Sabbath in the Bible does not refer to a day, but to a deliverer. The Sabbath is Jesus. And what he's saying is, if you enter into his rest, that means that you cease from all your efforts to be right with God and throw yourself fully on his finished work at Calvary. If any of you thought in your mind, or maybe you, maybe this morning you, you find out that you've been deceived, and you're going after God, and you're after God, and you want His anointing, and you want His power, and you want all of this for self-serving purposes. If you've done that, you have defiled the Sabbath. That's what that means. You say to God, God, I want the anointing of the Holy Spirit so I can serve you better. God says, I'm not interested. God, I want the anointing so that I can win the world to your Son. I'm not interested. God, I want the anointing so that I can have power in ministry and be a blessing to others. I'm not interested. God, I want the anointing so that your son is glorified in my life. God's interested. God's interested. Self-serving purposes. That's what violation of the Sabbath is. It's Jesus. When you see the Bible mention the Sabbath, you remember it's talking about the Son of the living God. Now we go to the horizontal commandments. These are vertical here. With our relationship with God. Now we're into horizontal. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Honor, esteem your father and your mother. If you do not honor and value and esteem your father and mother, you do not honor, value, and esteem the God who made them your father and mother. One of the most terrible witnesses to the gospel is disrespectful children. At any age, we were blessed the other day to go to the uh, the uh, assisted living center and Israel's and the Detwaters put together a night where we sang to them and had a time of ministry. It was wonderful. And there was one lady in there in particular that I got kind of locked into and she wanted to talk so much that her entire conversation for 15 minutes with me was a sentence. I couldn't break in and say, sweetheart, we got to go. Any of that, I had to stay right there. I, I didn't want, not like I wanted to leave, but she just kept on, kept You just tell us, hunger for fellowship, hunger for it. And she said, you know what happened to me? She said, I was, uh, I got in the car with my daughter one day. And she said, where are we going? And she said, oh, we're just going out to take a ride, mom. And we pulled up in the parking lot of this assisted living center. And my daughter said to me for the very first time, and I'd never been here before, 
that's your new home. And I've been here ever since. God help us. Dishonoring your mother and father. If you habitually dishonor your mother and father, and you claim to be a Christian, you need to take a serious look as to whether or not you're saved. Because if you don't submit to God's delegated authority, that means that you snub your nose at his inherent authority. It does. You should not commit murder. Boy, most of the time when you ask folks about this one, they go, Never done that. I said, well, hold on just a second. Jesus wrote the Bible. And he's the only one who gets to vote about what it means. And he interpreted that in the New Testament. And he said, you guys say, thou shalt not murder. And you stop there. Have you anybody ever murdered anybody in here? Okay. Have you ever been so angry with somebody you wish they weren't alive? then you've murdered somebody. Jesus said, if you have all against somebody, you're so angry at them, you just assume them not be alive. In my book, and he's the judge, you have murdered them. Have you ever spread gossip about somebody else? Have you ever taken truth and turned it just a little bit to your advantage and downsized them in order to exalt yourself? In other words, in order to shore up your reputation, you did it at their expense? That means you murdered them. Blood is on your hands. See, if we go by Shula and them standard, I'm okay, you're okay. We're all right. Hey, hey, Ken, we're all right. We're not in jail right now. We've not been committed murder. And your standard, I love you, Ken, but your standard is real low. And I don't have much of a problem meeting your standard. That's not the standard by which we're going to be judged. And so the Lord said, my righteous standard is this. And you have violated that, which means you are a murderer. Just because man hasn't punished you for it does not mean in any measure that God won't punish you for it. Slander is murder. The Bible says that whoever spreads slander, slander is a fool. Anybody exempt so far? You should not commit adultery. Well, here we go again. Asking Jesus to define adultery. Most of you married people in here, I would suspect, I would hope, would say that if we ask for a raise of hands, and I'm not going to ask for that, that you've never committed adultery based on your definition of it. But, here we go with Jesus again defining what adultery is. He said, let me tell you what adultery is. Adultery is if you look lustfully upon anybody, and nowadays we need to say anybody, who is not your spouse, you've committed adultery. Anybody. A thought. That's all it takes. The Bible says, Let the marriage relationship be undefiled because fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. New Testament. See, somewhere along the way, you guys, we've all bought into a lie. And that is the God and the God in the Old Testament and the God in the New Testament are two different gods. Guess what? That's not true. Look at, look at Isaiah 45, 21. He said this. Let's take counsel together. Okay? Let's bring forth the case and take counsel together. And what does he say? Who has declared it from when? New Testament times? 
Is that what it says? Who has declared it from ancient times? God's saying, from the beginning I've been telling you this. This is not new. I've been telling you this from the beginning. Okay? Here we go. Do not steal. Have you ever fudged on a time card? Have you ever taken minutes on the job to make a personal phone call at the expense of your employer? If you ever not work diligently the whole time they were paying you and did something on your own, balanced your checkbook, have you ever cheated on your income taxes? Have you ever fudged on your deductions? Have you ever uh, messed and gommed? And by the way, the Bible says that you steal from God when you don't offer up tithes and offerings to Him. So we, you know what? To be honest with you, we fear more from stealing from the government than we do from stealing from God. We think the government can do something worse to you than God can. Jesus said this. He said, listen to me. You don't need to fear the one who can throw, uh, that can just kill you. And that's it. All man can do is kill you. And after that, he can't do anything else to you. That's when you think about it. That's it. He said, you need to fear the one who not only can kill you, but can throw you in hell for eternity. And guess who he was talking about? Himself. He was talking about himself. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Anybody here ever never, ever, 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 never in your life told a lie? Listen, if your standard is, I live by the Ten Commandments. I'm just saying, let's be honest with the standard and see how things measure up. Let's be honest about it. Can we not be honest about it? Does God know? Do you know that Jesus, the Bible says that one of the characteristics of judgment, final judgment, is this. There are four of them. They're going to be, it's going to be impartial. It's going to be according to your works. It's going to be according to truth. This is Romans chapter 2. And it's going to be according to the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It means this. God not only knows when you violate His Word, God knows when you violate your conscience. And it's all laid bare in front of the one to whom we must give an account. That's what the Bible says. Buck naked right in front of Jesus. No place to hide. And there it is laid out in front of the perfect judge. He's a just God. You ever lied? Absolutely. Every one of you have lied. So have I. The last one to round it out. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Boy, this is a real zinger here. Because covetousness is such a sin of the heart. Bruce lives in a third world country and ministers in a third world country in which there is the poverty that goes with being in a third world country. And I can guarantee you this. His people, what's the annual income of the average person in your fellowship, Bruce, would you say? A dollar a day. $365 a year. And, and the exchange rate is what? One dollar for every 80 shillings? Hundred. So one dollar for every hundred shillings. So you have to carry a wheelbarrow to go get bread. And, and, and yet, his church is full of covetous people. And they don't have a dime. You know why? It's because of what they desire. I've never met hardly an African that had enough money. 
And they'll make an appeal to you over and over again for it. Why? Because of the covetous nature of their heart. We're not the only ones that are like that. But are we like that? You better believe it. We're satisfied with our nothing to do with our present conditions. We always want change. We're always looking at somebody else trying to measure up to whatever they want. And we begin to resent. Let's say they've got something I want. And I begin to resent the fact that they've got it. And I resent it so much more, so much so that not only do I covet what they got, but I'd like to kill them for it. Now I've committed murder. So let's see what the divine standard has said about us. We are our, we have adulterated our worship. We are idolaters. We have taken the Lord's name in vain. We have violated His precious and only gift of His only Son and tried to work our way to heaven without Him. We have downsized the cross and so doing that. We have committed murder. We have committed adultery. We have born false witness, we have stolen, we're, we're, we've committed thievery, and we're covetous people. And God says, man, they're worth dying for. That's worth spilling my son for. No, the verdict comes down from heaven. And you know, what, you know what the verdict is? The verdict is guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. Man's standard is this. Our legal system, which is about as good as it can get. You know what the, divine, the standard of our legal system is? Guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, Al. But from heaven, it's going to be guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because why? God's a just God. God's a just God. How's it going to work out for you in judgment? You stand there in front of Him and he, the gavel comes down. Do you know what we, we, we value in, even in our legal system? We, we, don't, we, don't, we aim for it. It's an ideal, but we seldom realize it. And you know what it is? It's the same words that are up above the Supreme Court building. You know what they are? You know what it says? Anybody ever been there? You know what it says? Equal justice under law. Four characteristics of God's divine judgment. One of them is it's impartial. You don't be according favors. You're not going to be able to say, well, hey, guess what? I knew so-and-so, or I went to so-and-so church, or I did this. There's not going to be bribery. God can't be bribed. He doesn't need anything from you. He can't be purchased. He can't be compromised. He can't be bought. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be fooled. He's God. So as it stands in the presentation of the gospel to the unrepentant, to the unrepentant, it's this. It is a judgment of guilt beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that judgment will garner us, it will produce for us the wrath of Almighty God. The guilt verdict will be handed down. There will be no appeal. There will be no quibbling, as a matter of fact, because the Bible says that every mouth is going to be stopped. There won't even be contorting back and forth. There won't be any of that. There won't be any give and take. Any of that. None of that. There won't be any of that. And the gavel is going to come down. The judgment is going to be guilty as charged. The penalty is going to be separation from God forever in hell incurring His divine judgment. And that's going to be it. And there's not a thing in the world that you and I can do about it. Not one single thing that you and I can do about it. Not one. Well, you know, we were church-going people. I got baptized. I got proof. I got it right here. I, I don't, let me go get my picture. I've got it archived. Here it is right here. I got baptized. Member of a church. 
from the time I was uh, old enough to remember going. I pastored a church. None of that. Every mouth's going to be stopped. The judgment's going to be secure and fixed. It's already been made. The sentence has already been declared, or the judgment has been declared. The sentence just hasn't been carried out. And here's what's going to happen. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. Satan's just cast into eternal damnation. It's called the lake of fire. Beast of the false prophet are there. Look at the, look at the preceding verse and the end of verse 10. Where they are, and the Bible says about this judgment, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the Bible says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from the, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast out into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. One of the responsibilities of a minister of the gospel is not just to teach. According to the book of Colossians, it's to warn and teach. And I'm issuing a warning to you with only permission. I, get, I don't have any authority that's outside of what's given me in the Bible. And I'm warning you that judgment is coming. And that God is indeed a just God. And for the unrepentant, it will be nothing but God's judgment. And there's not a thing in the world that an unrepentant person can do about it. Not one thing. Now, we've got about 12 minutes left, according to the normal time that we stay here. If you're sure this morning that you're born again of the Spirit of God, if you have received Him as your Savior, and you don't believe right now, according to your profession of faith, that you're not going to stand at the great white throne judgment. And, or, the rest of it's not for you. Or, if you'd like to hear, for the sake of witnessing the gospel to others, the rest of the story, stick around. If you're interested in neither, you can leave right now. Anybody wants to leave right now, you can leave. And I don't mean you won't be mad. Nobody will be mad at you or anything like that. You can get a head start on the, on the people at Morrison's. But you can leave right now. Because if you're not interested to hear the rest of it, it won't do any good to hear the rest of it. Because here's the important... This is the turnstile. This is the turning point in the, in the gospel message. This is what makes the and here for. See, the and is right here because based on the divine standard that we just saw in God's Word, there is an and right here. And notice when I shared with you, I said there's nothing that you can do about it. But God did something about it. God did something about it. And let's examine what God did about it. And again, you can leave right now if you don't want to hear the rest of it. Because I'm not being smart at it either. Go ahead and leave. And if only two of you stay, then praise God. 
I'll, we'll, we'll assume that either two of you, maybe are, are God's convicting you about the fact that maybe you're not saved. I want you to stick around. Or maybe you need to hear about sharing the gospel with somebody who needs to be saved. Because that's half of the gospel. But there's another half. Notice I said that there's nothing that you can do about it. But God did something about it. God did something about it. Now, is He just? Absolutely. Do you know what? According to Isaiah 45, 21, God is also a Savior. We're going to take a whirlwind trip through the Scriptures right now. And it's going to be easy but to find. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God spoke to Adam after he made him, and you know the narrative, you know the story. He made Adam in his own image. Formed him. Made Adam. And said, listen Adam, only got one rule, and this is this. Don't mess with that tree in the, in the, in the, in the middle of the garden. Adam had a will at that time. It was placed in bondage later. But at that time he had a will. And God gave him that and gave the introduction of the standard because he gave them the privilege of worship. See, to not do that means Adam gets to worship God. Because what he's saying is, whatever that tree promises, God's better. Because worship means worship. It means the assignment of worth. God, whatever promise there is and whatever temptation comes along to take of that tree, this is, this is what I've come to figure out about you. Walking with you is better. You're God. I worship you. And God said, if you eat of that, you're going to die. Well, did He mean physical death or did He mean spiritual death? He meant both. And what did Adam do? And you know what he did. He ate. And when he ate, that did ultimately result in physical death. But it, the immediate result was far worse and it's spiritual death. Separated from God. The fellowship that he and God enjoyed was severed. He was now not in unity with God, but he was in enmity with God. There was no reconciliation. There was no possible way to be reconciled. He had violated the divine standard. He had become what we all are. And that is a sinner. That's what he had become. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. What's Adam's response to it? Look at Genesis chapter 3. The same response that we do. He tried to cover it up. Look at Genesis chapter 3 verses 6, 6 and 7. The Bible says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Three responses to sin that we normally do. Three of them. Here's the first one. We try to cover it up. We try to blame somebody else. Or we try to do something to, to numb the pain of it. What did he do? He covered it up. It took and sewed fig leaves together. And so here's the telling question that God asked him coming in here. He says, now watch this in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? 
See, this is the question that we have to answer in the presentation of the gospel. In the presentation of the gospel, we have to answer that question. We have to ask that question and we have to give somebody a truthful answer to it. If you're coming to my house and you're making your way to my house and you get lost on the way and you call up at a, on your cell phone and say, Brother Lindsay, how do, how do we get to Summit Creek Drive? And I'm gonna, what's the first thing I'm going to ask you? Where are you? I can't steer you in. We can't get together on this unless you first accurately know where you are. Well, let me tell you, friends, that's the gospel. You have to know where you are. Not in relation to your cousin. Not in relation to your family. Not in relation to your church uh, traditions. Not in relation to what other people say. Not in relation to your religious acts or ceremonies. Not in relation to any of that. You've got to know where you are in relation to a holy God. Because, see, here's the deal. God didn't answer that, ask that question for His benefit. You think there was any doubt in God's mind where Adam was? God wasn't scratching His head going, man, I wonder what became of Adam. He, answered, he asked that question for Adam's benefit. Adam, I want you to know where you are. Is that not the gospel message? But to answer that question, where are you? Because you cannot get saved. Listen to me. Friends, you cannot get saved unless you first realize you're lost. This is incredibly important. You've got to realize you're lost. Otherwise, he's just this. And that's how we present him. We don't want anybody to be defended over this because that will offend you. So we leave out the offense and we step straight over there. And people make feigned commitments to Jesus because they don't realize the weight of their sin. Where are you? Where are you? He answered the question and listen. Adam said, I've hid. I hid because I know you're holy and now I'm not. And God made a promise. It was a preview of coming attractions. Look at it in verse 14 and 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are a curse more than all the cattle, the serpent who, who tempted Adam and Eve, the devil. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and he, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the preview of coming into tractions, because that's the gospel. God says, you know what? Here's the deal. Man's messed up now. You've tempted him. I've got judgment on you. You're done. But let me tell you how I'm going to defeat you. I'm not going to defeat you by annihilating you or wiping you out. I'm going to defeat you by coming down here. Because the Bible says, listen to this. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You bruise God on the foot, that means all you're doing is messing with His footstool because He's not enthroned on earth. He's enthroned over earth, but He's enthroned in heaven. And what He's saying is, watch out because I'm coming down there. And when I do, I'm going to defeat you. When I do, I'm going to take the law and the handwriting requirements, the basis of your accusation, and I'm going to do something with those accusations. I'm going to do something with them. Remember, you can't do anything about it, but God most assuredly did. What book is this in? Have not I declared it, Lord, from ancient time? Ancient 
time. That's as far back as you can get. I am a just God and a Savior. I'm just because Adam did die. Adam, I, there were consequences to his sin. I did expel him from the garden. That's exactly what happened. He got kicked out of the garden. But I also made a promise that one day I'm going to do something about it. From the ancient time, this isn't new. This isn't anything new. Now watch what he happens. His judgment is he's expelled from the garden. God goes on to level the entire earth with a flood as a manifestation of his judgment. It's a preview of coming attractions. He's destroyed the earth by water. Next time he's going to do it by fire. And he went on to say in Genesis 6, 5, think of this language. Our God said that he was sorry that he made man because man is continually evil and the thoughts of his heart are evil all the time. Eight people got out of God's judgment. Eight! And He's no different than now than He was back then. Why? Because He's a just God. And He built an ark and saved eight. But the most telling part of the narrative and the most precious part of it is found in Isaiah 3:21. Stay with me now, please. Look at uh, look at I mean excuse me, uh, excuse me. Did I say Isaiah Genesis 3:21? Genesis 3:21. Guess who shared first blood in the Bible? Hmm? Who? Who's who shed first blood? Who's the first person, huh? God did it. God did it. We think of Cain and Abel, but God's the first one that shed blood in the Bible. God's the catalyst for everything. He doesn't follow. He's our leader. Look at Genesis 3.21. And also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. I wouldn't doubt if that were sheep. The Bible doesn't say it, and I'm getting extra biblical, and forgive me. But let me tell you this. In order to make tunics of skin, something's got to happen. You know what's got to happen? Somebody's got to die. That's the first time that blood is shed in the Bible. And anytime that something happens in the Bible the first time, we can understand every other time it happens going back to that first event. And God shed first blood. God took some animals and cut their throat and stripped them of their fur and clothed Adam with it. What is that? A preview of coming attractions. You know what the preview of coming attractions is? You know what it is? You know what the communication is? That redemption has always been and is now and always be accomplished through the death of the substitute. God had every right because He's just to kill Adam. It's Adam's throat that should have been cut. It's Adam's skin that should have been absolutely ripped off of his joints and marrow. It is Adam that that should have been done to. But what did God do? God took animals and slayed them and clothed him with what will one day be the righteousness that God clothes repentant people with. Hallelujah to His name. They went from covering up their sin through their own efforts to receiving God's effort to do something about it. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. What does God do? He calls out a special people unto Himself. And He makes the first one of them, Abraham. He meets Abraham one day and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you big time. I'm going to make the seed of your, your descendants are going to outnumber. Look up in the star and see. And He gave promises. And he gave, made a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham said, Okay. That's what he said. Okay. I believe that. 
In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you know who the first adulterous family in the Bible is? The first family in the Bible that's mentioned as being idolaters is Abraham's family. Abraham was not a good religious guy who came to his senses. He was an idolater. He was me. And he was you. And God chose him because he thought one day a bunch of lawyers and doctors would come from that bunch. No! God chose him because God chose him and he offers no other explanation besides that. And then God marked him out of special people because through that seed, remember in the Genesis 3.15, that seed with the capital S. It's not a small S, it's a capital S. And it's singular. Through that seed, not seeds, but through that seed is coming a Redeemer. It's a preview of coming attractions. I'm going to mark out a special people. And then God gave him a special law. And he, he liberated them from a bondage to Egypt. And he called them out as a special people to himself, the Hebrews, the Jew. And he said, through you and through your lineage, one day there's going to come a lamb. One day there's going to come a deliverer. It's going to happen one day. And he made these covenant promises. He met them three months into the wilderness journey on Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, we talk about it all the time. Cecil B. DeMille's, uh, Charlton Heston and the whole bunch. And we talk about the Ten Commandments and all that. He went up there and he got the Ten Commandments. But while he was up there, what else did God give him? Fifty chapters on how to construct the tabernacle. Don't just focus on the Ten Commandments. He gave him the Ten Commandments because he's what? He gave him the tabernacle because he's what? See, what he was saying to him up front is, I know you're going to mess up. It's like giving somebody a driver's license and a pad of tickets at the same time. And saying, here's your driver's license and here's your tickets for reckless driving. And there's 150 of them because I know you're going to mess up. He said, the only way that my righteous judgment against you is going to be appeased is through the sacrificial system that he gave him in the tabernacle. But not just that just put off his divine judgment. It didn't really satisfy it. It was just a preview of coming attractions because yet God shed blood again. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. In Isaiah 45, 21, what does it say? Come, let us take counsel together. Who has declared this? Who but me? I've revealed this to you. I'm a just God. And how long have I been declaring it? From ancient time. We focus so much on the law, it's always at the expense of the tabernacle. Gave him the law because he's just. He gave the tabernacle because he's a savior. He deals with the rebellious nature of these people. They're in and out, back and forth. They're apostate toward him. They turn back to him. And it's just one sordid tail after the other experience not tail it's real one sorted account after the other of going back and forth and God forgiving them and then repenting and getting restored and then going back and doing the same thing and here we go there we go but yet God's redemptive plan still moving in spite of them and one day he visits a virgin a, 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 a virgin named Mary and he tells her the deliverer is coming and God steps out of heaven and sends His only begotten Son. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, puts Jesus in her womb. Born outside the curse. Because in the loins of Adam were the rest of humanity. But Jesus got introduced outside the curse. The perfect, living Lamb of God. And all the while, God was saying, it's just a preview of coming attractions. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Hang in there with me. I'm going to make good on my promises. John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit, sees him. And in John 1.29, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
That's what he says about him. He lives a perfect, sinless life for 30 years. He begins what was called his public ministry. The first words out of his mouth when he began his public ministry was not believe. The first words out of his mouth when he began his public ministry was repent. It was repent. Oh, dear one, don't check out on me now. It was repent. It was repent. That was his message. It was repent. It was repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The first word of the gospel is not believe. It's repent. It's repent. It's repent. That's the first word of the gospel. He lives a perfect life against his public ministry, performs miracles to no end, and validates his profession as the son of the living God. God speaks to him and to us from heaven. And through the witness of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, who lit on him like a dove at his baptism, said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the one. I shed the, 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 the animals in the garden because of this one. It had anything to do with them. He was pointing to this one. That's my Son. I'm impressed with my Son. I'm impressed with my only begotten one and only Son. I love Him more than you could ever imagine. He's done it right. He came and did exactly what I told Him to do. He didn't come to do His own will, but He came to do the will of the Father who sent Him. And He's done it perfectly every time. You listen to my boy. Listen to my boy. I wouldn't send Him for good people. If there was a way to me, if there was some code you could obey, if there was some new way of living, and I gave you a list and you could pull it off, that's what I would have done. He gets in trouble, not because of anything he'd done wrong. He got in trouble because of false claims by a bunch of religious people who could not stand his holy life. Death can't stand life. They falsely accused him. He wound up in a tribunal. And was before the high priest. Who else should he be before? Who was it? Who was it in the tabernacle that administered the sacrifice? Who was it but the high priest? You think the high priest was under the control of the devil? The high priest was doing exactly what God ordained him to do. Lay your hands on him. Lay your hands on him and accuse him. Not for anything that he had done, but I'm going to let the accusations fall on him. It's said of him in Psalm 69, Though I've done nothing wrong, yet I still must repair it. I'm not guilty, but I'm going to come for the ones who are. And that includes every last one of us. And they find him guilty of nothing. But the false accusations are leveled nonetheless, and they bring him up before Pilate. And you know the story. He's standing there and there's not one single word that comes out of his mouth because as a lamb is led to the shearers, he was led to his execution. His sacrifice. The only time he ever, ever challenged Pilate was when Pilate said, don't you know I've got the ability to spare your life or save it or, or, or take it? He said, you don't have any authority over me except what's been given to me, you by my Father in heaven. There was a thief and a murderer. The Bible says of Barabbas, this is what it says about Barabbas. He was a murderer and an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. And they said, listen, it's Passover time. Pilate said he's trying to get out of it because he's scared to touch this guy. He knows something's wrong. His wife told him. He said, don't mess with him. 
He said, listen, he thought surely they'd go for Barabbas. He said, listen, let me release somebody to you and let's take Barabbas. Let's cru crucify him and let me release to you Jesus. And what did they yell out? See, the murderer and the rebel was offered up for the son of the living God. And I am Barabbas. I've been a murderer and a rebel from the beginning. And so have you. And so sure enough, they strip his beard out with their hands. They put their hands inside their beard, his beard and just tear it out. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they mock him and strip him naked and have him carry his own cross to Calvary's hill. And he gets there. And all of humanity is on either side of him. On one side is a thief who's mocking him. And on the other side is a thief who's mocking him. Every one of us have mocked him. We don't come into this world worshiping him. We don't come into this world seeking him. We come into this world running away from him. We come into this world in rebellion. In sin. And fleshly sorry appetites. And one of them changes his mind. That's called repentance. He looked at the other thief and he said, You know what? You need to hush. Because we're getting what we deserve. Why? 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 Because the Holy Spirit showed him that God's a just God. And he didn't come to this earth for worthy people. He came to this earth for unworthy sinners. And he said, we're getting what we deserve. And this man has done nothing wrong. You know what he had the privilege of hearing? He had the privilege of hearing in the tense, in the great language, when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is a, that's a repetitive voice, which means that every wave of group of people who came up mocking and jeering at him and ready to spit on him, he was saying, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. And he'd heard enough of that and said, Wait a minute, something's going on here. I've encountered justice, but I've also encountered love. That's in a category all its own. He didn't repent of his sins because of the way Jesus lived. He repented of his sins because of the way he saw Jesus die. And he turned to him and he said some of the most precious words in all the Bible. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and said, Today I tell you the truth. You'll be with me in paradise. He didn't have a chance to get off the cross and go help him. An elderly laid across the street. He didn't have a chance to get off the cross and go get baptized. He didn't have to go, get, go to the cross and ask people he'd wronged to forgive them. He didn't have a chance. His life was weighing in the balance. And for some of you, yours is too. And so, for six hours he hung there. Nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. For the first three hours it was daylight. He got the wrath of man. But remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, let's examine this one more time. Is there another way to redeem Lindsay Lewis's sorry, rebellious heart? Is there another way? And the answer came from heaven. He said, Son, there's no other way. I can't stay just and forgive an unjust man unless you die. Unless it's through the substitute. I can't do it.
I'll have to compromise my justice and then I'll become a sinner. I'm holy and you know that and so are you. And the only way we can pull this off is that you've got to die. Not only die, but the full measure of God's wrath is going to be poured out on you. Every last bit of it. I'm going to mow you over. I'm going to do it to you. I am. Because that's what love will do in order to satisfy its just nature and to show forth its glory. That's what it will do. And so, for three hours it's daylight. For the last three hours it's dark. Jesus looks up into heaven and says, My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? You know why? Because the whole earth has become dark. The whole entire earth has become dark. Turn to Habakkuk. Will you? Dear friends, I love you so much. Turn to Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 13. Will you turn there? For the first time in eternity past, present, and for the last time and never again in eternity future. This will never happen again. It happened one time and it was enough. But Jesus looks up into the heaven and He says, and we've celebrated this before in this place, when He said, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He was speaking to the Trinity. And there was a break in Trinitarian union. There was a break in the perfect unity of the Trinity. And He looked up and He said, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, why are you turning your back on me? You know why? Because just like the high priest in the tabernacle symbolically laid the sin on top of the sacrificial goat, scapegoat, and the other goat whose throat was cut, they cut that throat because all of the sin was laid on there. And the high priest took him up and offered him as a sacrifice. That happened. Caiaphas was his name this time. Except this time it wasn't a goat. This time it was the Lamb of God. And he said, why have you forsaken me? The answer comes back to heaven. And you feel your name in there. I've put it in my Bible. Why have you forsaken me? Why did the Son of God, why did God the Father and God the Holy Spirit turn their back on God the Son for the very first time ever? Let me tell you why. Because of Lindsay Lewis's sin. And because of your sin. Because it was put on His blessed Son. That's why He forsaken Him. Listen, if God's ever going to make an exception, if there's a loophole in the law, if there's some kind of loophole here, uh, 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 some kind of something to be exploited in, as this case is, is um, adjudicated, as this case is set forth, if there's some kind, of, some kind of loophole to exploit, surely God would have found it in regard to His Son. If God's going to make an exception, it would have been here because His Son was perfect. But God didn't make an exception. And He leveled all of His wrath on Him because He poured out all of my sin on Him. Because He who knew no sin became sin. Hallelujah to His name. God turned His back on His Son because for you as a believer, He will never, ever turn His back on you. That's why He did it. I'm so grateful He did it. And he followed through on it. On Mount Moriah, Abraham was asked to go up there. And he said, you know, he told him to go up there. And he stopped him. When he got ready to take the dagger and put it down on him. And he stopped him. He said, don't do it. Don't do it. I want to just test your faith. And Abraham said, God will provide a sacrifice. And God provided a sacrifice. And it was a preview of coming attractions. And God said, not a one of you can sacrifice to atone for the sin of mankind. Only my son can do it. And his son did do it. Because God is just and the justifier of those who put their faith in His Son. I'm 
so grateful he did that. And he died, and when he said it's finished, it's a commercial term that means the debt's paid. It was paid in full. And what was the debt? It was like an instrument of debt in the time period. You put a wax signet ring on it and put the word to telestai, which is that word, and it means paid in full. The debt's been canceled. You, repentant sinner, you are free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And then everybody's discouraged. And well, they should be. All his followers are giving up. And they're thinking, man, what's happened? What's become of him? We thought we were going to come in here and that everything was going to be taken care of. We'll come in Jerusalem and everything's going to go right. And he's going to throw away the uh, Roman tyranny and replace. He's going, to put, he's going to put a crown on his head. And here he comes. We were thinking he was going into Jerusalem to receive a crown. And what does he get? He gets a crown of thorns. Embedded. That was his coronation, was a crown of thorns. It was the curse from the beginning because he said, with thorns, these thorns are going to mess you up and make your work harder. It's the curse. The curse was placed on God's dear son. And with bated breath, they're waiting to see what's going to happen. It went right over their heads that he was going to be raised from the dead one day. Oh, man. Son of man's going to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to be scourged, beaten within half of his life. Three days later, he's going to raise from the dead. Any questions? They went right over their head. But three days later, hallelujah, he came forth. He came forth. You know why he came forth? He came forth because God accepted the sacrifice. He went up to heaven. And the Bible says, not with the blood of goats and bulls did He go up to the very throne room of heaven. But on the mercy seat of heaven, that mercy seat right there, He carried in that bowl an approach to holy God and took that bowl and spread it over the literal mercy seat in heaven. And God said, I am satisfied. Your blood is exactly what was required. It pleases me. Now, son, you go back down there and you seal this victory for Lindsay Lewis and the likes of that bunch because I'm going to raise you from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's eternal declaration from heaven that says He's satisfied. His wrath has been appeased. His justice has been satisfied. And if you'll repent and put faith in Jesus, you'll be saved. Hallelujah to His name. Hallelujah to His name. The Bible says He was offered up for our sin, but He was raised for our justification. This is why when He, when he first appeared to the women at the tomb, you know what the first word out of His mouth was? The first resurrection, post-resurrection word out of Jesus' mouth was, Rejoice. Rejoice. I went to heaven with fear and trembling, not knowing. Was it done right? This is his flesh speaking. He was God, but flesh at the same time. Did I do everything just right, Father? Because if there's just one blemish, if there's just one spot, God wipes him out. And he says, Son, I'm pleased. I'm pleased. It was enough. And he raised him from the dead to show us. And Jesus said, Rejoice. It worked. God sent me back. He accepted the sacrifice. You're free. You'll never incur the wrath of God because I took it for you. <coughs> now what does that mean to us? Let me tell you why. That that was just a dip in the pool. Let me tell you why that was just getting wet. 
See, we don't. There's no redemptive value in uh, baptism. You understand that? There's no redemptive value in baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Water baptism doesn't save anybody. It's an act of obedience after you're saved. But I thought I was saved. You know what? I wasn't saved. I just got wet. And you know why? Because I never knew a time in my life, never in my life did I know a time when I didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Never do I know a time in which I would have fought you tooth and nail. Was that the Son of God on that cross? Absolutely. Did He die on the cross and was raised from the dead? Absolutely. Is that Him? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what? Even the demons believe and have enough sense to tremble. But there never was any trembling. So, five years later, when I was 13 years old, I was a revival meeting at People's Baptist Church in Hazelhurst, Georgia. Again, at my grandfather's church. My grandfather loved Jesus a bunch. And I guess in some, some perverse way, I thought, well, maybe my grandfather's faith will get me into. But that day, it was just me and Jesus. And I don't know who else was there, but some people tell me there were other people there. I'm not sure about that. But I know this. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit fell on me that night. And when, he, when that convicting power of the Holy Spirit fell on me, the reason it fell on me is because, see, I had already done this. I had already had this. I already had that. I had some semblance of that. But I would never done this. I never repented. You understand? See, because the Bible says in Acts 20, 21 that salvation is repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. This faith was predicated, it was based on not saving faith, but just a, an intellectual knowledge that God is and His Son is. You know, stick with me. I know it's been long. This is important. He is God. Hey, Papa, them, all all the bunch, family, you know, will the circle be unbroken by and by, tradition, so forth, baptism. I mean, you stack it all up. I had it all that. Scripture memorization, you know, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those things are wonderful. Those things are wonderful. and, and, And did I follow through with baptism? Absolutely. But here's the thing I never remember being under any kind of conviction until that night in Hazelhurst, Georgia, at People's Baptist Church, and the weight of my sin began to fall on me. And I just remember thinking, I am in trouble with God, and my grandfather cannot get me out of this. And I repented of my sins. And in genuine saving faith, trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. Let's bring it home to modern day. I've got permission to share this. Recently, one of our own among us, the Holy Spirit began stirring in his heart. I guarantee you, because they was raised in a family, a Christian family, and they love Jesus and affirm the message of salvation every day and live it. But I'll tell you this, little Aiden, Israel, all his life, he'll tell you, I guarantee you, there probably wasn't ever a time when Aiden couldn't remember believing in Jesus. Probably not. But after sowing the seed of the Word in his heart over and over and over again, God began to work on him. And God began to grip him. He began to grip him. Believed in Jesus now, like many of you do. 
But God began to grip him. And here's what he said the morning he and his dad came up and said that Aiden had gotten saved. And it just blessed me to no end. He said he walked up to his dad. His dad told me this. And they held him up. You remember that? They held him up and, and, and said Aiden got saved. You know what he said? Here's what he said. And this is pure as it can get. He said, Daddy, I've got two books. I've got a good book and I've got a bad book. And the bad book is a lot bigger than the good book. What was he doing? He was repenting. And then he put his faith in Jesus. And the weight of what happened here fell on him. And he realized that wasn't just for the sin of the world that my God was offered up. It was for my sin. And he's saved now. Praise God for that. Let me ask you a question. Where are you? Isn't that the question that Adam was asked? Where are you? Most of you came in this building today and you believed in Jesus. And you got faith in Him. Yeah, you, you would, you'd, you'd take a bullet about the fact that, yeah, Jesus Christ is and He came and did all that. But has the weight of the sin, that your sin that put Him there, fallen on you through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit so much so that God's leading you to repent and put faith in Him? Do you see it? See, half the gospel, half the gospel is not the gospel. That's half the gospel. And half the gospel is no, God, no gospel at all. The gospel is this. It's this. And, and this. And this is what God did. And this is how God leads you to faith in His Son. Now listen, I know we've gone long. 30 minutes over, I didn't plan that. I'm sorry. I really not. I mean, what I'm saying is, please hang with me. Let's, let's just bow our head right now. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever repented toward God and put faith in His Son? Let me, let me, you, can I say this? Actually, look up at me for a moment, will you? When the Holy Spirit begins to convict somebody, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict somebody, Man doesn't give the invitation. The person who's under conviction does. You know why? They say, what must I do to be saved? You don't have to ask them or tell them what they must do. They want to know. You know why? Because they know they're lost. Go look at the book of Acts. What must I do? The Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? What must we do? And Peter preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. What must we do? What must we do? Put your faith in what God did. Repent and put your faith in what God did. So, the invitation, if God's after you, He's already given you the invitation. And you need to repent toward God and put faith in His Son. And in so doing that, He wipes you clean. And He credits you with everything He says about His Son. And you've been made righteous. If you've not done that, dear Lord in heaven, I make an appeal to you. Do it this morning. Even pray right now. We don't have a standard prayer because there's not one in the Bible. There's not a packaged prayer in the Bible. Best I can tell. There are a bunch of different ones, but the thief on the cross is about as good as any. Lord, have mercy on me. You ask for mercy through God's Son, recognizing you're a sinner, and guess what? Based on the authority of God's Word, you get it. Amen.